This is an ABC podcast. Well, good day and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer from Radio National on air online or via your ABC Listen app. Always lovely to enjoy your company. Now, one of the purposes of history is to use the time between events and the moment when those events are recalled to reflect on what those events really meant. Well, it's probably still too early to draw serious conclusions about the political and economic consequences of the COVID pandemic. However, as our guest today makes clear, we can still place the pandemic in the broadest possible context in order to gain a proper perspective on it. That's the mark of a true historian. Neil Ferguson is one of the world's leading public intellectuals whose new book is called Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. It's published by Penguin Press and available in all good bookstores across Australia. Now, Doom has been widely reviewed in the FT, The Economist, The Guardian, the New York Times, the Washington Post, just recently in The Australian, and extracts have appeared in the Wall Street Journal. Now, Neil, as many of you no doubt know, is a Harvard historian and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University in California. He's been a guest on this program several times, and it's wonderful to welcome him back to Between the Lines. G'day, Neil. Uh, it's very good to be with you again, Tom. Summarise succinctly your latest thesis. Doomer's A General History of Catastrophe, which I felt might come in handy as we try to navigate our way through the COVID-19 pandemic, which is, after all, not over. And the basic argument is that all disasters, even the ones we call natural disasters, are at some level man-made. In other words, if a novel pathogen turns up, it doesn't hit each society equally hard. Some think of Taiwan do really well against it. And some think of the US or Brazil do really badly. And it's the same virus, uh, even if it does throw up uh, new variants. So that illustrates a general point that even those things that seem like natural disasters ultimately become disastrous in large measure according to human decision making. Even a volcanic eruption is only disastrous if you decided to build a bloody great city right next to the volcano and then rebuild it after the volcano had erupted once. That's the broad argument. And I think it helps to understand the politics of catastrophe because, of course, there will be other disasters. History is basically one damn disaster after another. Well, talking about disasters, when seeking historical analogies for this coronavirus, you know, the conventional wisdom refers more often than not to the Spanish influenza of a, a century ago, so this is 1918, 1919, you say, this is quite intriguing, a better analogy is the pandemic of 57, 58, which we hardly talk about. Yes, I think a lot of people last year, particularly in around March 2020, when panic was setting in in Europe and North America, seized uh, onto the analogy with 1918, 19. The problem is that that really was a much worse pandemic than the one that we have seen. You'd need to imagine death tolls in the tens of millions to get close. And although there are those, including the economists, who are trying to revise up the death toll, it's never going to get to the astonishingly large proportion of the world's population that was killed in 1918-19. 
I think it's now clear that COVID-19 is worse than the Asian flu of 57, 58, but only a bit worse. In both cases, we're looking at a death toll of about 0.04% of the world's population. And I think the COVID death toll will be higher by the time we can sigh with relief and say this is over. But it's closer and it will always, I think, remain closer to 57, 58 than 1918, 19. And that's interesting because, as you say, Tom, nobody remembers mm-hmm. the 1957, 58 Asian flu, or at least hardly anybody does. I mean, I've had a few uh, older friends who say, yeah, actually, I do remember that. I was very ill that year. But it's definitely not left the same scars that the 1918, 19 pandemic did. Yes, but this is a work in progress, this pandemic. Since you wrote your book late last year, we've had the rise of new variants, the rollout of vaccines, and then, of course, the the still unknown degrees of global vaccine compliance and durability. So is it too early to be definitive about coronavirus? Oh, it certainly is. And that's why this book is not a book about the pandemic, half so much as it's a general history of disaster with three chapters at the end that, that try to contextualise what we're going through. To say, oh, Neil, you should have waited till it was over, I think, is a somewhat facile objection. Pandemics aren't necessarily clearly over the way wars are. We'll be playing whack-a-mole with this virus for some time to come. But I think the important point is for us to try to start learning the right lessons from what went wrong last year. Because a lot went wrong, in particularly in, in Europe and, and the Americas, in the governmental response to the pandemic. And it's not too early to start learning those lessons especially as we still have some way to go before we really have brought this virus under some kind of control. Well, talking about the lessons, I mean, again, the conventional wisdom would blame populists for mishandling this crisis. You think of the Donald Trumps, the Boris Johnsons, uh, the Bolsonaros of uh, Brazil, the Modis of India. Shouldn't the blame be pointed at those populists who at various points played down the pandemic? It's very tempting to say that the pandemic did disproportionate harm in countries with populist rulers, not least because Donald Trump and Joe Bolsonaro, not to mention Boris Johnson or Indra Modi, made mistakes and their critics in the media didn't uh, hang about in pointing those out. But I think there are two points that need to be made before we conclude that the key to avoiding future disaster is not to elect populists. The first is that there were plenty of countries that did just as badly, if not worse, than those countries, and that they didn't have populist leaders. Belgium, for example, did not, nor did Italy, Mm -hmm. Uh, and those did just as badly in in 2020 as the UK, and uh, there are other countries in in Latin America that have done worse than Brazil, Peru, for example. And it's, it's hard to claim that there's a clear correlation between having a populist leader and having really high excess mortality. That doesn't seem to work. The other thing that's really important, and this is the broad argument of doom, is that when you look closely at disasters, although it's very tempting to blame the person at the top, usually the man at the top, that can distract you from the real point of failure. Because in reality, although Trump made a great many mistakes uh, in 2020, and I list them all and I'm not sparing in my criticism, the real failures did not happen in the Oval Office. The real failures were that the Centers for Disease Control completely screwed up testing, that there was no serious effort by big tech to make contact tracing part of the, the US response. 
And there was a, a really woeful lack of effective isolation of infected people and protection of the vulnerable. These are things that were done right in uh, Taiwan and in South Korea and to a large extent in Australia and New Zealand. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. And so to, to blame those failures on Donald Trump is, I think, to misunderstand the way government works. Ultimately, there's a public health bureaucracy. It's their job to call a pandemic and to take the right actions. And unfortunately, the public health bureaucracy in most Western countries did very poorly. If we say to ourselves, and let me put it this way, Tom, if only Joe Biden had been president a year early, none of this would have happened and we wouldn't have had excess mortality, then we're kidding ourselves. Because I think even although Trump made some difference at the margin, in practice, whoever was president, I think the public health bureaucracy would have done quite poorly and we'd have been looking at significant excess mortality. So we can't be naive about this, much as one wants to criticize populists when they make mistakes. If we draw the wrong conclusion from this, the next disaster will go just as badly because there's something much more profound and systemic at work here, I think. So all things considered, blame the health department's bogged down in bureaucracy. That's more important in explaining this crisis than the populist. I think that's right, because it explains why so many countries, regardless of whether they had populist leaders or not, did mm. badly. And if you want further evidence, uh, just ask Joe Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain. In 2019, Klain admitted that if, if in 2009 swine flu had been as bad as COVID in terms of its infection fatality rate, then the US would have had just as big a disaster on its hands as it's had in the last year. And that was under President Obama. I think everybody knows uh, who's really thought seriously about this, that there's a problem with the way the public health bureaucracy and the bureaucracy generally reacts to disaster. It's not that they don't have pandemic preparedness plans. They have them up the wazoo. I mean, they have any number of pandemic preparedness plans, and there are any number of agencies that can show you the PowerPoint deck that went with it. It's just that when an actual pandemic happened, none of these plans worked. And that's not the first time we've seen this. And this is a really important argument that I make in Doom. It's not just the pandemic that's exposed this problem. The financial crisis did it too. And so did Hurricane Katrina. And so if you go all the way back, mm. did 9-11. We have a fundamental problem, and I don't think it's confined to the United States, that we are getting less nimble in our responses to disaster. And we continue to delude ourselves that we have disaster preparedness because the bureaucracy has a 36-page plan. And that is not the real, that's not real preparedness. That's pseudo-preparedness. On RN, this is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Neil Ferguson is author of Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. It's published by Penguin Press. Now, Neil, you first spoke and wrote publicly about the rising probability of a global pandemic long before most Western journalists. So this is late January 2020. The dates are important. Now, you were travelling overseas. You got sick. Were you a super spreader? I'll never know if I actually had uh, COVID in that first wave. If I did, then I may well have been uh, a super spreader because I certainly travelled enough and saw enough people in that time. And I, I wanted to admit that at the beginning of the book to illustrate a really important point. In the face of disaster, even when we kind of know the situation's not good, our initial response is denial. 
I didn't really want to face the possibility that I might have this thing. Uh, and, and rather than take a precautionary approach and say, I'll play safe, I'll stick, stay home, I did not do that. And this is a problem that, that I think is in, innately human. We at first don't want to face it. And then quite often when we can't escape it any longer, we, we panic. I didn't, never got to the panic stage exactly, but I do remember at the end of February saying to my wife, uh, we're leaving California and we're going to the most remote place I can think of in, in Montana and we'll spend the pandemic there because you want to be in a very thinly populated place in time of plague. So I suppose I did switch from, from complacency to panic like a lot of people. One of the concluding lessons for the pandemic, you say, Neil, is that lockdowns do great economic damage and they should be avoided in favour of more precisely targeted measures, among them the quarantining of super spreaders, that is people who interact with far more people than most and therefore play an outsized role in spreading the disease. But in hindsight, if countries in March, April, May last year did not go into lockdown, wouldn't the crisis have been a lot worse? Oh, yes. There's no question that by mid-March, to take one example that's uh, being debated right now, the UK had to do something pretty drastic to stop the spread. The counterfactual, that the alternative strategy that would have been preferable would have been to act as the Taiwanese and South Koreans did early, get testing up and running very rapidly, and then use contact tracing to try to identify the infected and the potential super spreaders. So we blew all that in Europe and we blew all that in, in the Americas. By mid-March, it clearly was too late to do that kind of thing. We did a lot of silly stuff that probably really didn't make uh, much of a positive difference and, and may have done on balance harm. For example, I think it was a major mistake to have the schools closed as long as they have been in California. Basically, an entire school year has been lost, which has been extremely hard on poorer kids who don't necessarily have the space and the technology to study uh, remotely. Okay, so all things considered, are we now better off at predicting the next disaster than we were, say, in early 2020? The key point about disaster is that it's not predictable. The, the, the disasters in history, whether they're man-made or natural, if that distinction's even meaningful, don't follow any kind of pattern that allows you to predict them. And that's a very, very major problem for us as a species, because we love to predict things. In truth, you can't really see the next big earthquake uh, in California coming. Uh, and you can't really know how big the wildfire problem will be uh, in Australia next, next time that season comes. All you can do is be quick on the draw when a disaster begins. And that's the most important takeaway from the book, really. It's, it's better to be broadly paranoid, that is to say, be aware of all the different things that are out to get you from pandemics to wildfires to earthquakes to a hostile power and be ready to react quickly when you see the first signs of danger. Unfortunately, I don't think we're learning that lesson. I think we'll actually continue to repeat the mistake of meticulously preparing for the wrong crisis and, and be caught out just as we were uh, uh, in early 2020 by this, this new uh, virus. The odd thing about uh, what happened last year was that on paper, the United States and the United Kingdom were the two best prepared countries for a public health emergency in the world. That was the finding of a 2019 survey that the Economist Intelligence Unit published. And in truth, that these, these preparations existed on paper, but were really worthless 
when the rubber hit the road. This is a point that Dominic Cummings has been making. He was a key advisor to Boris Johnson last year. Subsequently, they fell out. And Dominic Cummings's critique of what happened last year in London, to me, is very persuasive, that the bureaucracy had a plan, but the plan was rubbish. And they took far too long to realize that. I mean, the UK had essentially open borders for months. So the lesson is, your bureaucracy will want to have a very detailed preparedness plan for whichever disaster uh, they uh, are focused on. And whatever the disaster is that strikes next, I fully expect the same kind of pathologies to reveal themselves unless we radically rethink the way we do uh, think about disaster. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. My guest is Neil Ferguson, author of Doom. Now, talking about predicting crisis or crises, one aspect of the COVID pandemic also seems clear and and painfully so, Neil, for those of us who believe that true prosperity and liberty can only really come with a small state that sticks to the basics of governments. I'm referring to the excessive increases in public spending that most governments in the developed world chose to make to fight the virus. Uh, They clearly show signs of becoming permanent. If you look at Boris Johnson's budget a few months ago, the recent Australian budget, uh, the Biden budgets, these are massive spending stimulus. How worried should we be that Western governments are borrowing at astronomical levels and increasing the size and the scope of the state? Well, we should be worried that emergency measures that were appropriate really to offset the impact of lockdowns are being continued long after the worst of the pandemic's over. I was uh, supportive of what was done uh, in the US, the UK and Australia in the thick of the crisis. If you tell people that they can't work and have to stay at home, what are you going to do? They can't subsist on air. But my point though is that they're now becoming permanent as the pandemic starts to wane. That's the problem. And the Biden administration is the worst offender here because the scale of the spending envisaged by the bill the Biden administration has brought forward this year. So around five, even six trillion dollars. Now, this is on an economy that's already rapidly recovering because mainly of vaccination, the fact that the pandemic is receding. So you're really pouring kerosene on the barbecue at this point. And we should be worried for two reasons. One, in the short run, it's very likely to be inflationary. In fact, it already is inflationary. We can see that. The second reason is that if this expansion of government becomes permanent, I think it ultimately will have negative impacts on on growth. So we're confusing an emergency measure with something that is becoming a permanent fixture. And that is going to be a costly mistake. We're repeating some mistakes of the past. It was a problem in the 20th century that after world wars, it was hard to roll back the expenditures and taxes to peacetime levels. Well, this is very similar, I think. And it's going to be hard because part of the problem is intellectual. We've allowed ideas like universal basic income and the modern monetary theory to become mainstream. And in fact, those ideas are are, are poorly supported in the economics literature, especially in the way that they're being implemented today. 
we we ran this experiment once before. We we thought in the 1960s that, that Keynes had shown us a wonderful way of maintaining full employment. You just had to spend, spend, spend. That became orthodoxy in many countries in the 60s, and that's the reason we had the inflationary problems of the 1970s, which then had to get fixed very painfully in the 1980s. Now, if there's one thing Doom is trying to do, it's to say you, you could learn from history here, people. And if you want to rerun those decades, fine, by all means, but don't be surprised uh, if you go from the supposedly roaring 20s quite quickly into into a stagflationary period. And by the way, I don't think it'll take 10 years to get into that situation at the rate we're going. Neil Ferguson's other best-selling books include Kissinger, 1923 to 1968. The second volume of his biography is indeed my next uh, book, and it should be out in a couple of years' time to coincide, I hope, with his 100th uh, birthday. As you can imagine, the relationship with China is pretty central to that book. Well, I was just going to say uh, that because this July, July marks 50 years since Kissinger's secret visit to China. That, of course, set the scene for his boss, President Richard Nixon's opening to communist China in early 1972. Now, you just mentioned Kissinger and his views on China. He recently remarked, Neil, that this is the biggest problem for the world. This is Kissinger, quote, because if we can't solve US-China relations then the risk is that all over the world, a kind of Cold War will develop between China and the United States. The question here, Neil, is why are we witnessing a new Cold War, which, by the way, the pandemic, as you've argued, has merely intensified? Well, I asked uh, Kissinger when we were both at a conference in Beijing in late 2019, if we were in a new Cold War, which I'd been arguing for some time, and his reply was we're in the foothills mm. of a Cold War. That was 2019. I think in 2020, we got out of the foothills into some of the higher <laughs> slopes yes. because the relationship between the US and China got a lot worse last year, not least because of the way in which the Chinese handled the initial outbreak. And, and indeed, they continued to stand in the way of a clear investigation as to what happened. But I think also the Chinese, in their attempts to sort of push back against the criticism they faced embarked on an extremely ill-advised bout of wolf warrior diplomacy that ended up alienating more people than it persuaded. And I'm not talking here just about Americans. I'm talking also about Europeans. Sentiment on China- And Australians especially, Neil. Well, I think Australians led the, the way here. In many ways, when I started talking about a new Cold War, the, the audience that was most receptive back in 2018 was Australian because it was already obvious to many people in, in, in Australia, not only in the government, that, that China was engaged in an extremely aggressive combination of, of technological conflict, espionage, influence operations, plus the standard geopolitical moves like building uh, airstrips on islands in the South China Sea. So Australians have been paying closer attention to this than Americans. And it really took, of all people, Donald Trump to waken Americans up. And I think now sentiment has significantly shifted right across the Western world. And not only the Western world, think of the way in which India has become a great deal more open to the idea of strategic partnership with uh, with the US, uh, Australia and, and Japan and the so-called quad. So the geopolitics of this pandemic have been have been remarkable. And now it's harder and harder, I think, to argue that we're not in something that that looks a lot like a Cold War with China. Neil, as you wrote recently in the UK Spectator cover story, 
Given all this, you'd expect US leaders would do their utmost to distinguish their, you know, liberal free market system from that of communist China. But your point in The Spectator is this administration, the Biden administration, at times seems to be following in China's footsteps. How so? This is a curious phenomenon that that we've seen in the past, the, the tendency of of a free society to start becoming a little like its totalitarian enemy in the course of a rivalry. The, the, the first time this really struck me was when people started frantically saying that we need a central bank digital currency in the United States because the Chinese have got one. And then I realized that lockdowns had been in many ways modeled on what China had done after January 23rd in, in its own uh, its own country. And, and, and the more I looked, the more I realized that a curious kind of uh, imitation complex is developing, at least in some quarters, a belief that that China handled this uh, crisis so well that we should regard the China model as something worthy of imitation. And you'll probably in- encounter this in Australia, too, that the China, the China envy syndrome, people who go to Shanghai and come back and say, I've seen the future and it works, uh, we'll never be able to compete with China if we don't have high speed railways and uh, and and the same kind of surveillance system uh, that they increasingly are, are deploying throughout their their cities. And my view is this is entirely the wrong way to think about our our rivalry with with China. We can't possibly go down the road of simply imitating what they do. If if we do that, what's what's the point? I mean, what's the difference between a surveillance state run by Xi Jinping and one that is in effect run by by the big tech companies in Silicon Valley? I think we need to be reminding ourselves why it is that a one-party system like China's is not desirable. And the answer, and I make this point in Doom, is that the thing that caused the most excess mortality in the 20th century, without question, was totalitarianism. And the reason it caused so much incredible damage, whether you look at Stalin, Hitler, or Mao, was that totalitarian regimes, when it comes to the crunch, are amazingly wasteful of life. Uh, And so the last thing you want to do in competing with China is to start building your own version of totalitarianism at home. We need to emphasize individual liberty. Yes, but notwithstanding all those points, are you sugarcoating America's very real problems? Is the American empire unraveling? I'm of the view that the American empire has certain fundamental frailties that make it different from, say, the British empire. Uh, of the 19th and early 20th century, it doesn't have a large number of people who want to go and spend large amounts of their lives in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. It does have a fiscal problem. And there's also the fact that the American public has a kind of attention deficit disorder when it comes to uh, foreign conflicts. But I'm pretty sure that the weaknesses are internal rather than external. In other words, I don't think the US is going to lose a war with China, or for that matter, with Russia. I think the problems that trouble me about the United States in 2021 are internal. And ultimately, you can see when you look around you, more and more parts of the American system being run by people who don't seem that committed to individual freedom at all. Final question. What does all this mean for Australia? You've been to our shores many times. You well know that China is our largest trade partner. It's clearly helped our prosperity. The United States, notwithstanding its very real divisions that you mentioned, has long been our most important security alliance partner, going back to World War II. Question, Neil, do you think our political leaders are right to move Australia closer to Uncle Sam, or should Canberra be more nuanced 
and play both sides, both the Chinese and the Americans, off each other in a kind of Kissingerian realpolitik kind of way. Neil Ferguson. I think in many ways, Australia made the decision some time ago to put its its security first and economic interests second. It will be difficult if Cold War II intensifies for Australia, but it will be much more difficult if Australia doesn't have a strong relationship with, with Washington. And I find the efforts of the Biden administration to resuscitate alliances uh, encouraging because it was the great weakness of the Trump administration that he so disparaged alliances. When Kurt Campbell went on the record in the Australian media just the other day saying the US has got Australia's back, I thought that was that was heartening. So in truth, ultimately, national security has to trump economic interest for a country, uh, particularly a country with Australia's location. And I think that that decision was taken at least by the intelligence and security community some some time ago. And I think from what I can see that most Australian voters get this, that a world in which China predominated over the United States would be a much less pleasant world uh, for everybody, including, of course, uh, the citizens of the People's Republic of China. Neil, it's always great to have you on Radio National. Thank you very much, Tom. Neil Ferguson is author of Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. It's published by Penguin Press and available in all good bookstores across Australia. Well, that's it for the show. And if you'd like to hear this or other episodes, including last week's China policy debate, just go to abc.net.au and follow the prompts to Between the Lines or just go to the ABC Listen app where you can download us for free or wherever you download your shows online. This is Tom Switzer, and I hope you can tune in again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.